0: Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon, everyone. As always, a pleasure to be here with you this Sunday afternoon, looking at your beautiful faces. This word behind me, gas lighting. By a nod of heads, how many of you know what it means? The new generation know what it means. <laughs> Even though this is an old word. You know that in 2022. According to the Merriam-Webster stats, this was the most looked-up word online this year, 2022. Interesting, right? What is the definition of gaslighting? Well, it is a form of psychological abuse in which a person or group causes someone to question their own sanity, their own memories, their own perception of reality people who experience gaslighting may feel confused may feel anxious may feel unable to trust themselves where does this term come from it actually comes from a 1938 play and later on a 1944 44 film gaslight which a picture is up there in which a husband manipulates his wife into thinking she has a mental illness so that's where the idea comes from. And many forms of gaslighting occur in our society today, among them medical gaslighting. And by the way, these are real terms, <laughs> which happens when a medical professional might dismiss concerns about your health by telling you, ah, you're imagining things. So ah, that's not real, it's, you know, it's not true. They may tell the person that the symptoms are in their head or even label them as a hypochondriac. There's also institutional gaslighting, which occurs when a company, an organization or an institution, such as a hospital, uh, may portray whistleblowers uh, who report problems as being irrational or incompetent, or they may even deceive employees about what rights they have in their company. So this is a real thing that people are fighting. Maybe some of you have experienced this from a close friend or even from a relative, making you feel like you're not important or that your opinion doesn't count. But I ask, in terms of our world, in terms of this reality, who is gaslighting who? That's the question I want you to ponder upon. Because gaslighting can only be done by other people, (laughs) by a man or by a woman. God does not gaslight. In this realm, mankind has been and is being gaslighted by the forces of evil, namely Satan. You're feeling anxious. You're feeling confused. You're feeling like you don't count. There's a force of evil behind that. It's not just people. And I submit to you, that the greatest gaslighting is being done by those forces of evil trying to tell you that Jesus is not real, that the resurrection did not happen, that Christmas ought not to be celebrated because it's a myth. That's the real gaslighting going on since 2,000 years ago, maybe since even longer, right? Men can try to gaslight Christians and others, but at the end of the age, those who stand on God's promises will be the ones proven right. That's why John writes in John chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 14, he says, the word became human and lived among us. We saw his glory. It was the glory that the father shares with his only son, a glory full of kindness and truth. We have these witnesses speaking to us from the first century. Look, we didn't invent this. This was real. We saw him. The Apostle Paul will say, to some people, we're a deadly fragrance, while to others, we're a life-giving fragrance. And who is qualified to tell about Christ? He says, we don't go around selling an impure word of God like many others. The opposite is true. As Christ's spokesman and in God's presence, we speak the pure message that comes from God. And Peter says, when we apostles told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't base our message on clever myths that we made up. Rather, we witnessed his majesty with our own eyes. For example, we were eyewitnesses when he received honor and glory from God the Father. And when the voice of our majestic God spoke these words to him. This is my son whom I love. And in whom I delight, we heard that voice speak to him from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And many, many other witnesses that we don't have time to review, who certify that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're having faith in what is true, what is real, and not in the midst that are being peddled out there by the forces of evil that have convinced some people that all this is not real. The joke will be on them, but it's not a joke. It is not a laughing matter when judgment comes. We're picking up our story. We're almost done with the life of Christ. This is not the last lesson on the life of Christ. We have one this Wednesday, God willing, coming up, which will be the last lesson on the life of Christ. But we're on Saturday now. Friday, good Friday, Jesus was crucified. And now we're on Saturday, as we read here, the next day, the next day, which was the day of worship, the Sabbath. And that day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together and went to Pilate. So this is happening on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Jesus is, about, is in the grave, and the chief priests want to go see Pilate. They have one more concern to bring to Pilate. They're not satisfied that Jesus died. They want to make sure that whatever it was he was trying to do dies with him. They were not paying attention to what Gamaliel had told them in Acts 5, 34 through 40. Do you remember what Gamaliel told them? He said, be careful that you may not find yourselves fighting against God himself. So they hadn't heard him, but they went to Pilate. And so they say, sir, we remember how that deceiver, look what they call Jesus, who's gaslighting who, I ask you. That deceiver said when he was still alive, after three days, I will be brought back to life. So even though Jesus' disciples had trouble believing that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, I mean, how many times did Jesus repeat this? throughout his three-year ministry. I mean, we must have read this a dozen times when Jesus says, and on the third day, he will rise again. But the disciples were not capturing that, but guess who captured it? (laughs) The Pharisees did. They heard it and they want to get ready for it. Of course, they didn't hear it in a positive way. They were trying to say, hey, you know, this deceiver said that after three days, I will be brought back to life. So they went to Pilate and they say, give the order to make the tomb secure until the third day. Otherwise, these disciples might steal the body and then say to the people that he was brought back to life. And then the last deception will be worse than the first. So they were getting ready for the fallout. They were, they were ready. I got to give it to them. You know, they were planning ahead, <laughs> at least. They were thinking it through. But look at them. I mean, they, what gall, right? To go up to Pilate and demand that he put a guard. On the tomb, but Pilate was willing to put, play the game with them. He told them, you have the soldiers you want for guard duty, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went to secure the tomb and they placed a seal on the stone and posted the soldiers on guard duty. So what is that what does that mean, the placement of a seal? Well, we believe that the Romans the Roman Empire or the seal of Pilate, if not at least the seal of his governorship, or perhaps even the Roman crest, was placed on the tomb somehow, kind of like a police do not cross line, the yellow tape you know, that police put around the scene, do not cross, right? That kind of like was what it meant. They would put probably a string or a rope across the stone and they would seal one end of it with a wax seal, so that if somebody tried to take that rope off, it would break the seal, and then they know somebody would try to get in. But they didn't just seal the tomb that way, they also posted guards on duty to make sure nobody would do that. So they were taking this seriously. So now comes Sunday, the resurrection. And a lot of stuff happened on Sunday. I wish I had the time to do at least two more lessons. On Sunday, but I don't. So I'm going to highlight some of the things that really strike me when I read about the resurrection. And that is from the account in John, John chapter 20. So if you want to turn there with me, we're going to be reading through some of those verses. Now comes the first day of the week. There was an earthquake. There were angels. The guards were scared. You know, a lot of stuff happened that I wish I could get into. That's very interesting and amazing. But we're gonna pick up the account starting from John chapter 20, verse one, from God's word translation. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary from Magdala went to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb's entrance. So she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that is John. She told them, they have removed the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple headed for the tomb. The two were running side to side, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Chapters 20 and 21 make up the climax of John's gospel, and the reader here of this gospel is challenged to see Jesus, and to make a decision regarding him. As Danny was saying in the Lord's Supper lesson, will will you love Jesus? Will you be inclined to follow him after this story has been told, after this account has been witnessed, or will you reject him? The time to make a choice is near. John tells us in this passage that Mary... Found the stone taken away. And there's an interesting Greek term here used when it says the stone was taken away. The Greek term here is airo, which implies a very violent taking away, not a roll taken away, which is the Greek word proskulio used in Matthew and Mark when they were rolling the stone on the place. I mean, it's a heavy stone, and you probably need a few people to roll it together. But no, here that stone was blown away. It was like, boom, and it ended up somewhere over there. <laughs> Only God could have done something like that. Only the angels could have done something like that. It's interesting in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus is said to have Adol taken away our sins in the same way. Blowing them away. Blowing them out of the water. Interesting phraseology. Jesus does not just roll our sins away. He violently throws them away, puts them down into the depths of the sea. Amen. Verse 5. So John gets there first to the tomb. He bent over and looked inside the tomb. Apparently, because he had to bend over, I I picture that it wasn't a straightaway entry into the tomb, but it was like going down into the tomb somehow. So he bends over, he looks inside the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go inside. Simon Peter arrived after him and went into the tomb. So John actually stays outside. He just kind of looks in. Whereas Peter goes right in and he saw the strips of linen lying there. What what do you think made John hesitate? Why did John hesitate? Why did he not go inside? What did he see? The text here says that the strips of linen, and remember that Jesus on Friday was it uh, Joseph of Arimathea, probably Nicodemus and some of the women. They brought, I think 100 pounds, was it, of spices? I mean, there's a lot of spices and myrrh and gum resins to wrap up the body. That was the fashion in which they buried the dead. They, they kind of mummified them, practice that probably learned from the Egyptians. And so when you mummify a body, you're taking this very sticky resin that then dries up really hard, And then you wrap the linen around the body, right up to the neck. And then for the head, for the head covering, they didn't wrap the face. They used another piece of cloth that they just kind of put over the head that way. So think about this. They saw those strips of linen just lying there. They were not ripped off. You remember when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave? What happened after Lazarus came out of the tomb? I think that's where they got the inspiration of the, those movies about the mummy a long time ago, right? See the mummy walking around. Because Lazarus was covered with those strips. He couldn't move that much. So Jesus says, take the strips away. Free him from the grave clothes. That's why they call the strips the grave clothes. But imagine if Jesus would have been raised or, or if somebody would have tried to steal the body, right, as the ladies implied they've taken the body of the Lord away. Where, where is it? If grave robbers had stolen the body, wouldn't they have taken the body and the linen strips? Would grave robbers patiently try to unstrip the body of the glue that was around there? I mean, the resin was hardened. Does that make any sense? They saw the strips of linen lying there. They were lying there as if the Lord, when he was raised, just kind of went right through them, kind of like he did when he appeared to the disciples. They were in a room and closed. Later on, John will tell us about that in this chapter. The windows were closed. The door door was closed. And they were in there. And suddenly what happens? Suddenly Jesus says, hey, they're like, whoa, where did he come from? That would have scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> if he could move through walls, certainly he could move through, those, through that linen strips, through that cocoon that probably had formed with the shape of his body. He just moved right through it. What more convincing evidence do you think that was to see those strips of linen just lying there So, I want to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to show you a graphic. I really tried hard to look for something that I could show you, (laughs) but it's hard to find something appropriate. But I I will show you this. This is a cartoon, obviously, but it's a representation of what happened when the women got there, which John doesn't tell us about. You can find this in the other accounts of the gospel. But they saw two angels. They saw one angel at the head where Jesus was and another angel at the foot where Jesus, where Jesus' feet was. What an appropriate representation. Where else in the Bible were there two angels looking at each other with their wings covered? Where else do you see that in the scriptures? On the mercy seat on the cover of the mercy seat where the blood was dropped from the animals and where God forgave sin. How appropriate a picture, isn't it? The first time I thought about that, two angels. Yep, this is the new mercy seat right here. This is where the blood was dropped. And this is what those ladies saw. Going back to verse seven, this is probably what he saw. Now, Peter also saw the cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't lying with the strips of linen, but it was rolled up separately. And here's where English, again, may, be, uh, may, may give you a different idea of what's going on than the Greek language. Uh, for the first time, I, I, I decided to look into this in the Greek because I had kind of glossed over it before. Some translations use napkin, and that's really not the right word there. It's not like they put a napkin on his face. It was a whole head covering that was kind of put like a little bag, if you will, that was put around the head of the person. And so rolled up separately, when you look it up in the Greek, the Greek word is entuliso, which means Wound up like like it was empty, like it was there, but there was nothing in it, and it was lying kind of like what you see right there. Now tell me if that would not have made you believe, like it says here. The other disciple who arrived at the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. If you would have seen that. What conclusions can you come up with after seeing such a sight? Did a grave robber did this? <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> did somebody steal the body of the Lord? No, because the strips of linen were there. They're lying there, and the head covering is right there, rolled up as they did, and yet it was empty. He believed. He finds a scene that could not possibly describe anything else but the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was not there anymore, and that all this, the stone being rolled away, the appearance of the angels, of course, and the strips of linen just lying there were all supernatural occurrences indicating that the Lord had triumphed over death and that he is alive. Now, it's interesting, right, uh, that it says here, they didn't know yet what scripture meant when it said that Jesus had to come back to life. So they went home. That's an interesting phrase. So they they go in there, they see these things, and I just picture them kind of like, Hey, let's go home. We don't don't understand this. This is, what, what happened? And they go back home. They had not understood what Jesus had repeated them over and over, that he had to suffer,
1: that he had to die at the hands of
0: sinful men and rise again on the third day. They did not understand what the sign of Jonah was about that Jesus spoke of. Interesting that the Pharisees got the message and they kind of had to prepare for it. But of course, they didn't know they were fighting the hand of God. What things can we take away from this event, the resurrection? I'm going to share with you seven declarations of the resurrection. Seven things that we can be sure of because guess what? It's been 2000 years and the grave is empty. It's been 2,000 years, and Jesus' body is not here on earth. He is still alive. He is still living. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Are you convinced? Okay. (laughs) So the first declaration, Jesus is the Son of God. Paul writes in Romans 1, 3, and 4, the good news is about his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his human nature, he was a descendant of David. In his spiritual holy nature, he was declared the son of God. This was shown in a powerful way when he came back to life. The first declaration, Jesus is the son of God. It is true what he had said. And there are only three conclusions that you can come to from all the things that Jesus said about himself that was either, he was either crazy that's not a word that we like to use today right that's not a politically correct word but is he was he was either insane or he was a deceiver like the pharisees claimed trying to deceive people a magician you know trying to use sleight of hand to deceive you or the only third logical conclusion is yep yeah, he was raised from the dead he is the son of god it is true Secondly, the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted. Think about this. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31 says, God overlooked the times when people didn't know any better, but now he commands everyone everywhere to turn to him and change the way they think and act. He has set a day when he is going to judge the world with justice and he will use a man he has appointed to do this. God has given proof to everyone that he will do this by bringing that man back to life. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. And the Hebrew author chimes in by saying in Hebrews 10:12, "However, this chief priest Jesus made one sacrifice for sins, and this sacrifice lasts forever. Then he received the highest position in heaven. So the resurrection declares powerfully that God accepted his sacrifice. That's a good thing for us. Amen. Number three, of course, we can be saved because God accepted the sacrifice of his son. Now we, the humanity that he came to save, can be saved by this sacrifice. And how does that happen? Well, that's where the good news comes into play. The gospel if we believe that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and that he was buried but on the third day he was risen again and we believe that to be true then we likewise give our lives for Christ. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 6 verse 4 and 5 he says that when we die with Christ when we get baptized we die with him. We are we die in a death like his. Thankfully we don't need to be crucified. We just need to be baptized. But God accepts that when you get baptized. He accepts that you're willing to die and give your life. And so baptism is a burial where we get buried with Jesus. And just as he was raised from the dead, when we come out of the watery grave of baptism, we're raised to walk in newness of life. And that's how we are saved today. God made that possible. And the, de- and the resurrection declares that that can happen. You can trust that will happen. Number four, it declares that we have a living savior. We don't worship a dead Messiah. The founder of our religion is not dead like the founder of every other religion in the world. No, our founder is alive and he is ahead of us in the place that we all wanna go, in the very throne of God in heaven. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 22 to 25 says, is in this way, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better promise. There was a long succession of priests because when a priest died, he could no longer serve, but Jesus lives forever. So he serves as a priest forever. And that's why he's always able to save those who come to God through him. If you come, come to Jesus and you want him to save you, he can do that because he is alive before the very throne of God. And the Hebrew author says he can do this because he always lives to intercede for his people. So that is an amazing thing. Uh, Jesus also said to his disciples before he ascended in Matthew 28:20, 20, he says, T- uh, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to do everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you until the very end of time. He is with us. He's not only before heaven interceding on behalf of anyone who comes, wants to come to him to save them from their sins, but he's also with us as we accomplish the mission of the church. He can be everywhere at any time because he is God. Jesus is the Lord. Also, number five, another declaration is that a day has been set aside, a very special day. And the Bible speaks of this a bit subtly, but it's there. Jesus rose on what day of the week? On the first day of the week, on a Sunday. The church started on what day of the week? On the first day of the week, a Sunday. So we gathered together to break bread on what day of the week? On the first day of the week, a Sunday. So by his resurrection, it seems that he set a pattern that followed every other major uh, thing that happened, followed that same pattern. When, this, when God poured out his spirit, when the church started, when the first 3,000 people were baptized and joined the church, that first day of the week has been a pattern ever since. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 shows us that it was a pattern they followed as well in the first century. Number six Oh, this is a good one. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead declares that we too will be raised. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, don't be surprised. This is Jesus speaking. A time is coming when all the dead will hear his voice. Now, there was one person who heard Jesus' voice. And by hearing that voice, he came out of the grave. So Jesus already showed us that he can do this which is why on that day when Lazarus was raised, he called them out by name. Some people say that if he hadn't done that, then everybody would have come out of their grave. But he said, Lazarus, come out. If he wouldn't have said Lazarus, everybody would have come out. Which by the way, a lot of people did come out of their graves, didn't they, when Jesus died on the cross on that Friday? People will come out of their tombs, he says here. Those who have done good will come out to life and live. But those who have done evil will come back to life and will be judged. Everybody will be raised. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you believed. You will be raised again. But it's going to make a big difference if you declare Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're going to be raised to live forever. Anyone else who has ignored Jesus will be raised to die forever. So that's something that we need to also take to heart. And last but not least, all these events that are really culminating here at the end of the ages, because that's where we're at, brothers and sisters and visitors. We are at the end of the ages. I think Danny alluded alluded to that too in his lesson. This is it. There are no more revelations. There's no other word. There's not another prophet. Jesus is going to come back a second time. But this second time, he's not coming to save. He's coming to judge. He already came to say. And so you have to ask yourself the question, if there is doubt in your mind about the veracity of these events, you have to ask yourself the question. You have some serious studying to do. You have to use your mind because if you look at history and you examine these events, then there's only one conclusion that you can come to after all the evidence that God has left throughout history. If Jesus did come back, If the Messiah fulfilled all those prophecies and he was raised from the dead, do you doubt that he will come back again? I mean, that is more guaranteed than the fact that you're gonna die. And who doubts that they're gonna die? We all know that to be true. But it is possible that Jesus could come back before you die. It's more true that he's gonna come back for sure. God stands by his word. We need to take a look at the word. We need to let that word in our hearts. We need to sink our our roots deep into the word of God. So we're not pushed aside by myths or cleverly devised tales and so that we may not be gaslighted by the forces of evil because there's only one truth, and that's the truth of Christ. Everything else comes from man, and everything else is a lie. That's what the Bible says, right? That the word of God be true and every man a liar. You believe that? Say amen. Yeah. <laughs> God stands by his word. Peter says in 2 Peter 1:19 and 21, So we regard the words of the prophets as confirmed beyond all doubt. See, this tells you something about faith. Most of the world has gaslighted you. The forces of evil have gaslighted you into believing that faith is kind of like, oh, I wish I wish upon a star. You know, that it's a, it's a flaky thing. It's a thing of imagination. Whereas, no, according to God, faith is based on reason and evidence. Faith is based on truth and fact. It's not based on my whim. It's not based on how I feel. It's not based on my opinion. Faith is fact. That's something you're not going to learn in school, but only in the word of God. And Peter declares that here. We have the words of the prophets confirmed beyond all doubt. And you will do well to pay attention to these words like a bright light shining in a dark place, waiting for the day to come and to the morning star to rise in your hearts. Understand this, Peter says. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. Do you believe this? This is real faith. It's not someone's imagination. It's not your opinion. Your opinion won't save you. It will condemn you. Your opinion is a result of the forces of evil gaslighting you all these years that you've lived here unless you've turned to the word of god and have been set free pay attention paul will tell timothy in 2 timothy 3:16 and 17 every scripture passage is inspired by god and all of them are useful for teaching pointing out errors correcting people and training them for a life that has god's approval a life that will be able to stand before god on that day and hear the words, welcome into the kingdom of my father. Welcome into the joy of my father. These, wor- these words equip God's servants so that they are completely prepared to do the right thing. I'm giving you of encouragement and a reminder, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are visiting today, look to the word of God. 2022 has passed you by. Did you read God's word in 2022? Did you sink your roots deep into the word of God? If you could have done better, then decide in this next year to do it. Don't just tell yourself that, but do it. I prepared a podcast, just in case you're too lazy or too busy. Uh, to not pick up the the word of God or your phone and read it. (laughs) Well, I recorded all the words in God's word translation this year. So they're ready to go for next year. Listen to the word of God, at least listen to it on a daily basis. But I suggest to you that to prevent to be gaslighted from the forces of evil, you've got to sink your roots deep in there. And that requires some dedicated time to study and meditate and let the words penetrate so that you can find yourself standing secure in the promises of God so that your opinions can be jarred out of the place because they don't really matter at the end. It's God's word that's going to matter. After services, we're going to have a time here for you. uh, If you want to come forward and pray, I know that there are many of you with health issues. Uh, Some of you have other things going on. I know our brother who's closing out is going, going to go over some of these prayers, but we're also open to receiving you if you want to pray with us after services are over. You can meet us up here right after the last song. God bless you. Merry Christmas. And by the way, you you notice that I'm kind of wearing Easter-colored clothes today, right? That's because to me, the resurrection is the new Christmas. I mean, Christmas, yeah, that that was not the purpose of our Savior, to be born. He had to be born to fulfill his purpose, which was to die. But not just to die, but to be raised again. So I'm wearing my Easter clothes today for that reason. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas.